Hello and welcome to this special edition of PropCast. Now to celebrate five years, 150 episodes, we're joined by not one amazing talent, but three the biggest, most respected personalities in the market. And it's an absolute privilege to be joined today by Ian Marcus, by Bill Hughes, Head of Real Assets for Legal and General Investment Management, and Lorna Brown, who's Chief Executive of Birchwood Real Estate Capital. So three for the price of one. Absolute privilege. Thank you very much, all three of you, for taking the time to come and see us today. Ian Marcus, let's start with you. So you've done an amazing number of things. You still are. You're still the most employable person on the planet. Talk about full employment. You've got 10 jobs. What should people, what should executives be saying to their employees right now? What fears are they going to have? What anxieties need to be quelled? And where were you last time we had this sort of uncertainty in the market? Well, I think the first comment that you should be making to anyone in this business is reminding them that real estate is cyclical. If you're of a certain age, and that's probably anyone who's been in the business for less than 10 years, you haven't seen a rising interest rate environment. You haven't seen interest rates above cap rates before. So these are unusual times. And for the younger members of the community, they will be feeling uncertain. They will be feeling nervous about what's happening in the market. But I would just express to them that there'll always be a real estate market. Who owns it, what we do with the real estate, how we finance it may change. But the built environment is there, and we have to respond to what investors, occupiers, and our customers actually need. This is now my fifth event, if you like, and we can go back to the GFC, the tech bubble, 9-11, various other episodes, and they each have different circumstances and different consequences. But to me, this is not the GFC. This is not a systemic risk to the market. This is a market correction unusually driven not by the real estate market this time, but by more macro, geopolitical and economic forces. And we will respond. We'll respond in different ways. It won't be as easy as we've had a momentum market for the last 10 years. And we'll move forward. And in fact, for the youngsters, I will tell them, if they're fortunate enough to have a role at the moment, they'll probably learn more in the next 6 to 24 months than they will have done in the last 8 to 10 years. And that will be a tremendous benefit to them as they move ahead with their careers. Mm. Lorna Brown, you've taken either a brave or inspired step or perhaps something else, delete as appropriate, in setting up a new business over the summer, Birchwood Real Estate Capital, which you've done with a major US institution, W.R. Barclay. And you've had a clamour of major roles over the years, working at LNG, Blackstone, Delancey, and back in the GFC when you and I met, you were head of restructuring at RBS. So you've obviously, uh, you've seen a few things <laughs> over that period. How does what we're seeing now compare to those times? I think it's difficult to draw. You can draw some parallels, but I don't think we're in the same set of circumstances. So a lot of people keep saying, is this like the GFC? We've obviously got some things that are polar opposites. So in the GFC, we went from having interest rates that suddenly became virtually zero. Ours have gone the other way around this time. So that's created some different circumstances. And I think that actually we've got a much more impacted general macroeconomic position that is also going to drive trends that we see through real estate in terms of consumers, users, and obviously tenants of real estate. So I think those things are different. This is not 
just within the financial sector, as Ian said. It's broader than that. But I also think that for that reason, there is a chance that what we're seeing at the moment is probably of a different duration. So there was lots of talk last time round in the GFC about banks, their role, what was happening, amend and pretend, extending loans, nobody sort of focusing on actually crystallising it. And I think that what we will probably see this time round is a shock, which we absolutely have here, but interest rates moving to a more normal level, which is not what we've had for the last 10 years. And that's what I would probably say to younger people who are looking at it at the moment. Don't expect that the return to normal is a return to interest rates at zero or 1%. We're moving into a position that's actually more normal. And we just have to adjust the metrics and the analysis to be able to reflect that. And the business that you've set up with WR Barclays as a cornerstone investor, what's that looking to do? And how are you going to be surfing the current market waves. Yeah, and I think one of the things that this level of volatility brings is it means that you need to have a flexible and adaptable business plan. So where we thought we started, you probably have to move to where the market takes us now. So from our perspective, we see that we are providers of capital into the real estate sector, whether that's structured as debt or equity, it really is just about risk. And it's finding borrowers and partners that are looking for additional capital at a different return from the equity target that they have. And for us, the idea is to bring that capital to them to support business plans through this volatility and try and bring some of the experience that comes with having seen a couple of the cycles to be able to underwrite what is fundamentally good real estate and support good quality borrowers through it. So Mm. for us, that's really what it is. I am clearly going into a market that has more movement than a simple benign market brings challenges, but it also brings opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Bill Hughes, you're well known for your love of cycles. Of course, different types of cycles do apply. Let's stay with the financial and property cycles. We will come on to bikes in a minute. But from your perspective, where were you in 2008? I'm going to stick with 2008 as the comparable for now. And in terms of LNG and the investment management business that you're overseeing, How are you responding and what are the sorts of questions that you're having to field internally from shareholders, from staff members and colleagues and your partners? Yeah, so as it happens, I started the job that I'm now doing at LNG in November 2007. So just at the beginning of when it really became obvious that there was something going on in the world, global financial crisis. So I've been there for 15 years and I would agree with the comments. Today does feel different for a range of reasons, but there are some things I would bring to the attention of the younger people, younger career. Stay calm. The market is here forever in one form or another. And volatility you know, does create some really interesting opportunities. If you go back to when I started at LNG, just as an example, we've heard a bit about the position of the banks in this. Ian will remember you know, the UK was dominated by bank finance in those days, in fact, way too much. And there were a few number of big players that dominated within the banking sector. We started our real estate lending business off the back of the fact that the banks were in distress. There were a lot of troubled books. They were underwater in a lot of places. And there were new providers of finance required to come into the market. And that's where we started. I mean, we remember talking to the Bank of England around that sort of stuff back in the day. So there's an opportunity for us that came out of the last time there was some sort of crisis out there, which we grabbed hold of that. We've now got a flourishing business that will be here for a long time. And there's a little bit of that now, I mean, which is why Lorna's timing couldn't be better. There are some lenders out there who have legacy issues they will have to deal with. A new business doesn't have that. There are those that are going to take a different perspective on the market or take longer to be comfortable with 
what risk really is, and therefore the debt markets are certainly more challenging at the moment, or the availability of capital more broadly. So yes, there's always going to be opportunities. The two things that get exaggerated at times like this are fear and greed. And we're sort of getting to that point where people who thought they might like to or would consider doing something now need to do something. That may be a refinancing, it might be the end of life of a fund, it Mm. might be a denominator effect type issue that some of the, the institutions have. So people will now need to do things and those with the capital and be under no illusion, there is still enormous amounts of dry powder there. What it wants for its money is debatable. So it's just a matter of when there's a sort of the clearing of the market happens and people are more comfortable Mm. with at least saying, we can see an end to this period and now may be the time. And it's going to be that difference in time. But one young analyst came up to me and was bemoaning the fact that now interest rates are now 3% in the UK (laughs) and how are we going to manage? And I reminded him that my first mortgage was actually at 16.5% and we actually managed to get through. So this is still free money as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, if you go back to the comparison, I would say the closest comparison, and I was knee-high to a grasshopper in these days, is the mid-1970s. I'd think of this as being, you know, stagflation of a form. There was concern over energy accessibility and the cost of energy was a feature then. That's the closest comparison, I think, in my lifetime. The other thing I wanted to say, though, and it relates to what Ian just said, on the one hand, if you have a legacy of business at a point in time that then becomes stressed or distressed by circumstances, that's one thing. If you have dry powder and you haven't got a book of business and you're starting afresh, the liberty of that is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. We're setting up a business in the US at the moment, and I'm loving the fact that we can start where we want to start and we've got no legacy to be concerned by. I think that I would agree because from my perspective, through the last couple of cycles, I've been involved with institutions where it is sorting out the back book. And I do think it's a time consuming exercise. I think it's somewhere you learn a lot. As you opened with Ian, I think the point is I don't think I ever really learned more in my career than I did through that period of workout and restructuring. So it really has value for people who are younger in the industry now and it will help them develop as they go forward. But I do think that coming into this market where undeniably we're in a period of price discovery, (laughs) if we can call it that, then I think that there probably will be market movements in a downward direction. And the question is, if you're able to capitalise on it, then that is... And that's the point, isn't it? There's a a lot more capital around right now. And I remember sitting with you and others, Ian, 2008, you know, we'd sit there pouring through the De Montford reports and all Mm -hmm. the other gloomy stuff that was being published. Everybody was sitting there waiting and was trying to figure out how bad things were going to get. But uh, it is different now because there is, as Bill says, there's a lot of dry powder around. Mm. So even where there are going to be price falls, there's going to be quite a lot of people chasing after any such distress, which is going to neutralise a lot of the potential. Well, maybe, but the issue which a lot of people are having is, have you got access to and can you price the debt appropriately? And therefore, those that may be able to take advantage are those that will use all equity for a period and ride through the next, is it year, two years, and then use leverage when the debt markets have calmed down. I mean, what you tend to find if you want to look back at previous cycles is you either have to deal with things immediately, which is what the US tends to do. It's very black and white. You know, just write it off. Look at the Resolution Trust Company with savings and loans. Except Look when at, it comes to the Fed and rates. Well, yes, but you know, just deal with it you know, black and white. Whereas here, we send just hang on a little bit. And the truth is, if you hang on even longer, and Lorna can comment about from the banking days, but if the banks had hang on and had a bit more faith and discipline and knowledge, 
they would have been fine. But yeah, we tend to be caught in this halfway house. And historically, those under trouble tend to end up selling or monetizing at the worst possible moment of the cycle. And then that creates an opportunity for others. You know, most of the US private equity firms came over here mm. originally on the back of that to take advantage of the non-performing loans and other opportunities which the GFC created for them. Yeah, and that's a problem, isn't it, Bill, in terms of what Ian was describing earlier as the needs. These exacerbate price falls, exacerbate problems where people have got time-limited funds or they need to sell. You've got obviously some of the gating issues with some of the fund managers. All of these things throw stuff onto the market unnecessarily. The two obvious places to go looking at the moment for distressed opportunities, one is sales from open-ended funds. The other is the refi pattern that's coming. You know, I would think most lenders probably are money good, probably going to not want to refi necessarily or the borrower may not want to in this market. So there'll be a lot of asset sales, I think, generated by the profile of refinances coming up. Before we leave the subject of what does this look like to the younger listeners, though, one thing I would say, and my colleagues here may not agree with this, so if you've seen cycles before and if you've seen difficult markets before, you've got that knowledge in your head and I think you're in a position to interpret things and probably see opportunities that come out of that. If you haven't seen this sort of thing before, as Ian pointed out, people who've come to the market the last decade haven't seen anything like this before, interest rates going up and we're going to see negative values and so on. More important for them then to spend time with people who've seen it before. I think yeah, yeah. I think this thing about sharing knowledge and a strong culture and being mm. together. So I, I know some people don't like the idea of working from an office, but I do think being together with colleagues now actually matters a lot. 100%. This is the time where that walking around, that informal conversation before or after, you know, by the coffee machine, etc., is enormously valuable to the youngsters. So you're with Elon Musk on this then, Ian? <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> bracket myself. With, I, I, look, I genuinely well, believe... Apple have demanded everybody back. Um, look, you... my wife doesn't want me at home, so I've got no <laughs> choice, so that's fine. But I enjoy the environment that is the office. And to quote Jamie Ripblatt, so I'm not going to take the credit myself, he said, how does a business have any sense of cultural community if everyone is disparate and separated out? You know, you need that environment to bounce ideas off. And as Bill quite rightly says, particularly for the youngsters, they should be there demanding the time of people of our generation going, come on, explain this to me. What does this mean? What are the consequences? Show me some examples. And we have a responsibility to the next generation to be there for them. Well, this is why Lorna's based her new business in the Scalpel, one of the newest, <laughs> shiniest buildings in Europe. Yeah, I do think that being back in the office is a really big part of it. You really, particularly in the early part of your careers, you learn through osmosis. So it's just listening, taking it in. It may not even be the conversations you're involved in, but just listening to people in the office and that you don't get remotely. So I agree. I think it is probably a time and a duty to bring people back together. We're a very small team anyway, so initially we're not there, but I can see that the return to work, it's been one of the biggest changes in working patterns. But I think this, if anything, is going to drive people wanting to get more out of being together. Yeah. It's this sort of market. And you said it earlier yourself, Andy, you know, we could have done this by Zoom. We all know each other well enough. We could have, but half the fun is being here together the bits that you haven't recorded are probably the most interesting and just having that banter between ourselves and it's part of the enjoyment of what we do. Yeah, 150 podcasts and 24 years without getting sued for libel so may that continue for another 24 years. We'll do our best. Um, I'm interested, Bill, because it's easy to think about it just being young people who want to stay at home and watch Netflix on a Monday and Friday when they should be working but older people as well, people with families have benefited a lot from working from home and I say this as someone with a 
seven month old baby at the minute that's struggling to sleep and we're starting to go do nursery drop-offs now but the whole working from home culture has suited families it's sort of older people that have got lovely large gardens and many of those people tend to like working from home more than young people so i'm interested corporately how lng has dealt with this in the business because obviously you've got hugely different teams of people doing all sorts of stuff from, yeah you know, the sales and yeah. advisory work to the investment side and fund management side so yeah. corporately how is that playing out and do you ever find a bit of a conflict between the fact that you obviously are a massive employer and a huge brand and a company on the same level that funds major regeneration schemes and offices yeah i think it's dangerous to overgeneralize this but i would say broadly during the pandemic when there was a moment to make choices about this mostly we had young people back in the office or leaders and it was the bit in the middle that tended to be most absent i think for the reason you described they're the ones they might have a nice house or somewhere to live they may be on long commutes they may have childcare issues but broadly we've been trying to encourage people back into the office but do that in a way that is not too heavy-handed people got used to a different cadence a different way of working and i think it's probably not brilliant to force people to do things that they're not necessarily overly comfortable with and of course people still have got health concerns and you know until fairly recently that was ongoing but the culture that we talked about earlier on it is clearly the case that a culture can thrive when people are spending time face to face and I think that's across the whole company that said there are a number of functions isolated tasks when people are with the computer and working on things and maybe writing things where of course it makes sense not to be in the office. By the way, it's a bit of fiction. It was never the case it was a five-day working week in the office. The numbers tell you that on average it was just under four. And why is that? Because some people go and see clients or go on site or do things at the office. There's holidays, there's illness. It's never been a five-day working week anyway. It's actually been 3.9 is actually the answer to that particular question. Hmm. Well, that's fair. That's fair. So, I mean, let's come back to debt. How right now... Lorna Brown, how are you working out pricing? How should people be thinking about the deals they're doing and modeling those deals when there is still so much movement? And, you know, we're several weeks away from Christmas now, but as we peer into Q1, when hopefully things will start to happen once again, what are you saying to people? And what would you still be saying if you were back at Blackstone or Delancey? What would be the conversations? I think the question is from everybody at the moment is how do we underwrite? How do you underwrite our data points or our anchors that you would have used are the parts that are either missing because there's a lower transaction volume or there's a feeling that confidence is depleted from where it was when you're looking at those pieces of comparable evidence. Yeah, but equally, the but, but the three of you all sat yeah. here and talked very vehemently about the power of experience. And I suppose my challenge to you and my challenge to all three of you and anybody listening to this is that everybody bangs on about experience and i think now equally is the time for that experience to move into intuition so right there might be a shallower pool of data but what does intuition tell you and i'm interested also that my other question is have we become afraid of using intuition i think that's definitely a sort of slightly deeper question yeah it's, it's a slightly deeper question <laughs> slightly more philosophical than yeah, uh, yeah, where maybe, we are, maybe but, it is maybe it's uh, too early in the day but. <laughs> but no i would say that what is important in real estate generally is fundamentals so actually, that is partly about intuition, but partly about looking back at the market. Is it an asset that has supply-demand imbalance? That's something that you'll be looking at to try and understand where the trajectory will be for rents. 
And it's also a point of trying to benchmark your risk relative to other asset classes. Real estate doesn't operate in a bubble. It operates within an environment where people and investors can make a choice between investing in bonds and equities and real estate. And what we had seen in the past is that many real estate investors were driving their return out of just pure cash on cash, cheaper financing, low interest rates and properties that whilst yields were lowish, were still throwing off a cash on cash return. So I think now the difference is you haven't got that with interest rates moving up. And I do think that you'd be looking at real estate as an asset class and saying, where's my risk premium and what risk premium do I need relative to other asset classes? If I can invest in investment grade bonds, for example, and I've got less liquidity in real estate, I probably want to see a premium. However, I do think that specific asset classes will move differently. Yeah. And certainly from our perspective, it's trying to look at what's the need for that real estate. Is it discretionary? Is it optional? How embedded is it into its environment and its local area? And I would be using factors like that to form a judgment. So I can't say everything you're just going to take 10% off or 20% mm. off is too simplistic. Mm. And for us, it will be looking at individual assets and less of a statistical play and much more of a mm-hmm. what are the individual submarkets. So yeah. it will involve knowledge. It'll involve other sectors. And I think it will involve talking across the different types of capital. So it won't be for debt alone to price it. It'll be talking to everybody else here who's looking at the equity markets too and bringing those together. So I think debt has none of the upside in terms of the growth and the recovery and all of those points and potentially all of the downside. So it really is about working with the partners to understand what the equity play is and then translating that into an appropriate return for the debt provider. The other thing I'd say, Andy, is, you know, we're talking about timing, we're talking about the market, we're talking about the cycle. One of the things that's pretty obvious, and we've been doing it at LNG, is to think about the less cyclical parts of the market. Yeah, thinking through the cycles. You know, Lorna's right, of course, that's sometimes about supply and demand and need for assets. So this is not about where we are in November 2022, particularly, but we've been looking at LNG at the different housing sectors. So built to rent, social housing, affordable housing, student housing. We've been looking at renewable energy as an asset class that's really interesting. And there's a £840 billion energy transition opportunity that we're investing in. We're looking at things like data centres, where there's a very significant under provision of data centres. Life sciences, similarly, it feels to me that's just structurally going to grow not irrespective of the cycle, but it hasn't got fully the same timing cyclical aspects of it. So there's other ways to look at it. Mm. If you, but they're, I mean, what I'm to, talking to, about they're is, but they're aligned to structural changes. So the way in which healthcare is becoming more digitized mm-hmm. and that shift towards personalized medicine, all of these sorts of things. But that's not new, Andy. I mean, you know, when we started, firstly we called it property, not real estate, and there were probably three asset classes that we thought of, which was offices, shops, and industrial. And now you'd look at the asset classes that Bill and LNG are moving into and others, but they've very much been at the forefront. It's where you've got that structural change, where you've got demographics, where you've got supply and demand in your favour. And there are those changes which are geared to what's happening to our lifestyle as much as anything. The other thing I'd say just to reinforce what Lorna said is, yeah, you start with the risk-free rate and then you look at what people want and the expectations of the equity are now much higher as a consequence of that. But that therefore, the expectations of the debt are yeah. much higher, and therefore, the maths doesn't make sense. And you can do all that, and I agree with that. But I think if you want the more existential, philosophical comment to your question, I think if you ask us what really drives a decision at challenging times of the market, 
we can analyze you know where we invest we can analyze when we invest on the cycle etc but actually don't forget the who you know if you ask a lender or an investor they can do the analysis and you can get analysis paralysis to driving yourself mad of trying to convince but if i've got my choice of borrower or investor or partner or advisor right mm. doesn't mean you'll avoid the cycles and the challenges we've got ahead but you've got a better chance of working through you know as a banker and Lorna will remember this a lot of the problem that led to the gfc was the banks just lent because the analysis said and i was the cheapest and i had the sharpest pencil but when the proverbial hit the fan i had no one to go and talk to because i had no relationship and i know that's an old fashioned word but you know, i would bet if you speak to most ic's investment committees and credit committees at the moment there is far more detailed analysis as there should be about the quality of the sponsor. Mm. Yeah, mm. that is so vital. Because, you know, guess what, guys? We're in a people business. Yeah. Shame no one at FTX got that memo, Ian Marcus. But, Andy, the thing related to that, which I do want to emphasise, alongside the other things we said earlier about what does it mean to have a crisis to younger career, in the next handful of months, years, that's when you build the strongest relationships. That's when trust matters that's when interactivity between counterparties matters if you can go through a tough time together mm -hmm. honestly you've built a business relationship for life and i do remember that from the last time around when i started lng we spent the first three years of that working the relationship side of things really hard because that rewards you then really does. and that's the only reason my team have been able to cajole all three of you today it's because of the immense <laughs> amount of dirt i've got on three of you over the last 18 years but bill hughes i'm interested to go back to what you were saying about essentially in my words my phrasing how you're creating a menu of different housing typologies for pretty much every stage of life essentially that's what you're doing you're supporting you know, funding social housing affordable housing shared ownership student housing renting of different shapes and sizes suburban and urban and ultimately what you're saying is that by being a long-term investor looking through the cycles you can even out the peaks and troughs that are going to always bob up and down in cycles but i suppose the question that i'm asking here is how you can make some of those strategies work when let's take any of the resi sectors that are typically low yielding how do you make them work when the risk-free rate is skyrocketing maybe the question is less about how lng make it work because your cost of capital is totally different from most other but how should startup pe outfits that don't have the same cost of capital that you do how can other companies be surfing the market right now in some of these low yielding sectors that we all agree are absolutely critical for the betterment of society yeah so as you rightly say we're low cost of capital we're very long term in our thinking if your cost of capital is high and your time frames are shorter and you're probably trying to time the market that is pretty tough. This environment, especially when debt is expensive, is really tough. So I'm glad I'm not in those shoes right now. I'm actually in a company that can continue to make sense of the opportunities it sees. In the rental sector, you're right, yields are low, but then rental growth has been you know, pretty positive. Mm. And you know that brings issues in about affordability of rents, and then that becomes a political issue. One of the reasons we're across all housing tenure forms really is because there's a scarcity of housing everywhere. And so we want to be part of all of that. So long-term capital can really make things happen. Those that are surfing the market, I think we'll find it pretty hard for the next six months. And what do you need from government? There was lots of chatter about relaxation, changes on the Solvency 2 rules, and the ability to open up longer-term pension fund investment, whether that's into 
science itself or the construction of new labs, both of which you do through different parts of the LNG business. But it still seems like the investment sector's got one hand behind its back on this stuff. Things look like they're getting better in terms of what's coming out of Solvency to the new regime. There'll be a widening of asset classes we can invest in, and that will be helpful to bring long-term private capital into a wider part of the built environment in the UK. So that's- Are there skills to do it, though? Because ultimately, the many institutions that have obviously had a few problems, let's say, over the last few months since the previous Prime Minister came in, are they going to be a bit more cautious than they perhaps were in September? Look, I think skills and depth of knowledge is an important feature when you're looking at new asset classes. Broadly, we've expanded the business in the last 15 years by bringing in people with different skill sets. It's not about surveying... You know, Ian talks about, we used to call it property, it's now real estate, but it's about the creative skills. Now it's real assets, data. Though, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's real assets. And the guys I have who look at infrastructure equity transactions, for example, got a totally different bank of knowledge from the people who were doing 1954 landlord and tenant work. Mm-hmm. All of these things matter. I think the industry has moved a long way in bringing in additional skills, new skills, and refreshing. It's got more to do, but it's come a long way. I mean, I think that if organisations aren't packed nowadays with data scientists and some people who come from the customer side of the business, they're missing a trick. We're a service provider of space and we have customers and it's taken decades for us to do that. One of the things that my hobby horse, if you want to get a little bit controversial, is that you think about those areas you talked about, life sciences, all, all forms of beds, if you like. We're getting into areas where politics does come into play. And my biggest frustration, and Bill and I have talked about this for decades because we both had the honour of at various times of leading industry bodies, et cetera, is despite what we do and the contribution we make as an industry and recognising that if you ask the government what its priorities are, it would be levelling up, regeneration, net zero, supply of housing. All those things are areas which our industry can be the catalyst of very positive change. And we don't have the right engagement or the right accessibility or credibility with the politicians and the civil servants to make that change. And as I say, Bill and I have been banging our heads against the brick wall on this for decades, and we don't seem to get anywhere. And yet, you know, as I repeat, look at what the subjects which government is focusing on. We are the agents of change for that. So we have to make sure we're front and centre and giving a positive perspective otherwise it'll be done to us yeah and now that the government is in a real tight spot in terms of indebtedness it would need the private sector more than ever and i'm hopeful in that we Mm. can make progress around there but of course i share the frustration Mm. you both know my views on this let's move the subject on i'm interested in what comes next we've talked about resi we've talked about labs and we talk about both of these things a lot on this podcast and ian one of your various hats is chair of East Steel, and East Steel has played a huge role in cementing some of the biggest deals, including Refi, uh, Biomed, Biomed Realty, and it's been a, including a huge... Including Lorna's offices. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Some of the building. Yeah, so yeah. Just, yeah, that small deal. So labs, and again, we're talking about this with all sorts of people, but life science is often now used as a bit of shorthand for all sorts of mm-hmm. innovation buildings, really, that could be anything from manufacturing tablets or prosthetics through to really detailed containment level four research facilities. What other sectors do you see emerging through the next cycle? What are the other potentially core asset classes that you think are now starting to be discussed? Things that might be quite nascent maybe over the next year or two, but could become these big thematic plays over the next four or five years. 
Well, I would say, without it turning to advert, one of the reasons Eastill have managed to have some success in those areas is because they've had the experience in the States for the last 10, 20 years. Areas like life sciences and built-to-rent and student accommodation and data centres and cell towers are businesses that have been very well established there for decades, and the capital and the experience has now come to Europe. So you look over there and see what else they're doing. An area which both Bill and I are involved in, for example, is let's call it generically senior living. And maybe we're just getting to that age where it becomes more pertinent to us now. But, you know, there's another area which (laughs) is going to be huge in my mind going forward because the government isn't going to fund it and the demographics say there's a need for it. The crossover to, as you said, we've gone from property to real estate to real assets through to infra, I think is really interesting. And the lines are becoming very blurred indeed. I'm a big fan for obvious reasons, of self-storage, another area which is very well established in the States for 20, 30 years, is still nascent in this country. But I think the biggest area, and Bill and Lorna will have stronger views on this because I'll have experiences, what we're going to have to get used to is just actually repositioning, re-establishing, regenerating our real estate. And what you're going to end up with is let's use that generic term of mixed use. We're going to have to get used to taking our city centres and recognising it's not that area is retail, that area is residential and that area is commercial. We're going to have to see that all coming together and that combination of skills tied into the broader, and we haven't even used the letters E, S and G yet on this conversation, but that whole wellness and provision of space two communities is going to be much more. So you're going to see public and private sector alongside. You're going to see work, live and play together much more. So what we're going to do is take all those parts of the jigsaw and actually put them together in a very different fashion. And I think that's where it's really pertinent to talk about people who have long enough term or long term capital, because certainly in the shorter term here, there's going to be challenges to bring forward new schemes, not just development finance, but actually sort of cost inflation, availability of materials, etc. All of which I think will have an impact on the development cycle and what comes forward in the next 24 months But fundamentally, in long term, way back when my initial foray into real estate or property, I did planning first. So my interest was solely in regeneration and what was happening. But through time... That's why you're such a diplomat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's why I sort of decided that I wanted to keep moving towards where we could progressively have an impact on the built environment rather than be reactive. And I think that's sort of where... I think that in the longer term, absolutely. And that's where we're probably a little bit different from the US and that their areas are more segmented. And I think we are looking to create more neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I absolutely agree. The other sectors that we're looking at are subsectors of main themes, subsectors of residential, subsectors of industrial, subsectors of offices. But ultimately, I do think that we're going to need more capital with a longer term horizon than just the short term hunters in order to sort of build the more stable real estate environment. And I suppose my challenge to that, and Ian's right, the US obviously do take the lead of all of these sorts of things. And there's a REIT for pretty much everything out there, isn't there? There's a probably hairdresser REIT, nail spa REIT. Well, there's a prison sp- REIT and yeah. a, uh, a brothel REIT. Yeah, I mean, they're prison <laughs> REITs. Yeah, that's a bit of a political hot potato. Let's leave that one for another day. But the question I was going to ask really was, And I remember when I joined the BPF as the REITs regime was coming into play and you were all involved with that on some level. But it seems that the public markets have shrunk over that period and the ability to tap the public markets to fund some of this stuff in the way that they do in the States doesn't really seem to be here so much in the UK. Is that fair? And if so, why? 
Yeah, I mean, I think particularly in a specialist area, I mean, REITs by their nature, real estate income trust, and they're effectively, a number of them are having to look at development as what is delivering their bump or their growth. But they've always, um, yeah, and they've always done that, haven't but, they? Not, not necessarily but successfully. But really necessarily what the REIT was designed to do at the outset. But one of the areas that's also missing in the UK that you do have in the US is there are no mortgage REITs. Mm-hmm. So that was outside of scope when the REIT framework was established here in the UK. And I think that's something that could be looked at about whether there's a place for public mortgage rates like there is in the US but mm. over here in the UK it's a bit like fusion energy isn't it I mean when people talk about the UK or European CMBS market it's always 10 years time right it's coming <laughs> and, and look we have some very well run listed real estate companies and there's some uh, great leaders of some of those businesses but not all also we struggle in have they got worse Ian well, worse in what sense? They've got are they, worse are they, if you look are they, at the are they less prices. good than they were in 2005? Well, I think, look, I think there is less talent being attracted to the listed sector because of the constraints that they have to operate in. You can't reward your people in the same way as you can. And there's a drive of talent from the listed sector to the private sector. Why would you expose yourself once a quarter to being used and abused by analysts and investors who may or may not understand your business and be constrained in terms of your reward? The other thing we have in Europe is the scale of our companies is just not sufficient to attract global capital. And so I think there's an inevitable debate about will we see further consolidation as we've seen at times like this you look after the tech bubble burst there were something dozens of take privates and the only reason that's not happening in my humble opinion at the moment is yes there needs to be a catalyst whether that be management or a single shareholder but it's very difficult to know whether you can actually fund it in an attractive enough fashion but that time will come and also people used to access the public markets because it was permanent capital Mm. There's no shortage of money in its various forms now. That's a real change in a generation. Mm. Going back to the comparison between the US and the UK, because Ian was talking about the sectors that have emerged here really to some extent reflecting what's been seen in the US, and I totally agree with that story. But you did mention ESG as well, oh, Ian. Light one, years behind us. Well, that's they? right. One thing, one thing that we're leading on, and if you spend time in the US, you'll see it, is around ESG, and there's some hesitancy around that because well, not just hesitancy; it's plain out illegal in some states. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> if, right. if you turn up in some states of America with a slide deck to speech to endowments yeah. with ESG, you'll get booted out, shut back on the plane, and let alone get any money out of them. There's some of that, but there's also pockets where there's a more progressive approach. Yeah, and you know we're engaging with that, but we're five to ten years ahead, and we're seeing the emergence of that. I do think that's quite an interesting dynamic for the US. Because somewhere along the line, there's going to have to be more progress there. And politics will play its part. Of course it will. But we see that as being a really interesting opportunity. I think that's really interesting because, of course, a lot of the US firms, whether it be private equity or other, that we put on a pedestal here, of course, many of their limited partners, much of their capital comes from other global investors yeah. who take this much more seriously. And they're going to have to realign what they do and how they do it. Well, there's some no do and some don't. And I register what you're saying, Bill, but I fear that it's going to take some kind of mumbai style event in the states before a lot of these people do wake up and get with the program because at the minute it's someone else's problem for many many people and then i think the other issue of the states is how politicized it's but, become but andy one thing we started this 15 years ago in terms of taking esg seriously and at the time you couldn't prove the link between esg and our fiduciary responsibility to deliver it goes returns. back to instinct well, then it was instinct, and I took a personal risk on that, actually. And then, you know, as the years go by, you can begin to prove the thesis that it will serve 
you well as an investor. It will allow you to attract capital you wouldn't otherwise attract. That will happen in the US at some point, somehow. It feels to me that the long-term, resilient, good-performing assets will absolutely have to be thinking about ESG. Mm. And the US will get there. It will get there. It's just a question of timing. It takes time. I mean, you know, who was talking about climate change, sustainability, regeneration, organic foods about 40 years ago? And we all thought he was a rather strange person. That's our new monarch. Mm. And now everything he talked about then is absolutely mainstream. And it will take time, but Bill's absolutely right. You go and talk to some of the state pension funds, they understand their obligation. Mm. And look, you could say the UK is behind parts of the Nordics and the Dutch. The Dutch have been at the forefront of this for a long time, and now they understand that it's about total return and social impact that they have, as well as economic return. Mm. And we're going to have to get that balance better. Have you spoken to His Royal Highness? You obviously worked with the King when he was Prince Wales at the Prince's Generation Trust, as it was previously called. Give us some reflection on that. I mean, you've obviously got a fair amount of insight there. Will you come and visit me in the tower? Um, <laughs> I haven't had the honour of speaking to him since he ascended to the throne, but you know you do hear things. And I think the most challenging part for him will be, I saw how passionate he was about several of these things we've talked about and that he knows he won't be able to use his convening powers and engage as much as he would really like to, but I'm sure he'll find a way to still well, influence. Not? I mean, why should he not be able? Not everything needs to be political. No, it doesn't. But you know, you're getting me into territory that I know very little about yeah. and probably shouldn't comment about. But that's just the role of the monarch. They have to be apolitical. Mm. And I think he'll find that a challenge, but I'm sure he'll find a way. And the charities continue to work. Mm. And the investments he's made over the years, both financial and other, will come to fruition. And mm. I think he's a leader for much of what we now do as an industry. And we should take note of that. No, and it's been hilarious watching all of the big architecture practices totally U-turn and all of their criticism of <laughs> yes. Charles's No uh, glass and steel opinions. anymore. Yeah, that's been quite interesting. Mm. But Bill, let me come back to ESG. I've kind of left it until the end deliberately because, you know, this is something that you were very passionate about. And I remember, you know, one of my frustrations during my time at the BPF would be I felt sometimes I was given these thiefdoms that people didn't care, residential being one of them, right? The line that came back to me from the BPF hierarchy, and Ian, I remember this, is why are you buggering about with that, Andy? No one cares about residential. It's a tiny membership. We go over there and play around with your toys and we'll leave you alone. And if you get this piece on the TV once a month, then we won't challenge you on it. And I felt to some degree that sustainability was one of those baskets of toys that I was allowed to play with when Patrick Brown, obviously, who you work with, who's now here as our ESG head. But there has been a lot of movement, which is very positive. But equally, Bill Hughes, you'll register some of the cynicism, not directed at LNG specifically, but certainly directed at what's seen as an ESG industry now. And there have been many scandals involving other businesses, not just property, but mainly financial and banking businesses that we won't necessarily name, but listeners can find them on the internet. How are you having to deal with the fallout from that? Because there is a groundswell of cynicism around this. There is a level of pushback now in some areas. Is that something you acknowledge? Is that something you're dealing with? And how so? Yeah. So you're talking about greenwashing. I'm talking about greenwashing. I'm talking about turning on the websites of property companies telling me they're building buildings out of steel, glass and concrete and these things are somehow not having an impact on the environment. Yeah, I think there is some cynicism rightly about some of this. When it became obvious that you had to be seen to be doing something around ESG, of course the first thing that happens is promises rather than actions and I think we will be judged by actions and that's about measurability and that's about 
evidence and empirical backdrop. And as we go forward, the measurement of things related to ESG, like decarbonisation and the science behind this, we're all going to be held accountable. So, you are can, we you can, I mean, how are we going to be held accountable? Because none of the people in charge of companies right now, most of them won't be here in 2030, let alone 2050. No, so the individuals all... might not, but things like sustainable finance disclosure, which has been in Europe for a while and is coming yeah. post-consultation here, for example, that absolutely is going to hold people's feet to the fire. And I think that's right. I think the bit that might be missing is small companies that are going below the radar. But any large company has no choice whatsoever but to properly engage in this. And it will be found accountable for its actions. And I'm okay with that. And you're finding most CEOs nowadays, part of their compensation is very much directly linked to this. And the question a lot of people have asked me is, well, I remember the green agenda, as we then called it, prior to the GFC. Everyone talked a good game, and then the crisis came along, and most were more concerned about survival. So that got put on the back burner. So is it the same? We've all been talking about it. Then we have the current crisis, yeah, to try and tie these things together that we were talking about at the beginning. And therefore, oh, well, fossil fuels are fine. You know, development of any sort is fine because we just need to keep going. The train has left the station this time. You know, there is no way back. And as Bill says, you know, some companies will move faster than others. Some countries will move faster than others. But the momentum is now there. I did a talk to about 400 students the other day, an introduction to real estate. And these were students from very diverse and... This is disparate. part of your role with Cambridge? Or? No, this is called SEO, a charity which Goldman, Tristan and Eastall support. It's a US firm, which is about getting students from very diverse and challenging backgrounds into the industry who's sole knowledge, if they think about property, thinks they're going to be an estate agent or work on a construction site. <laughs> so they got me lecturing them for 45 minutes. Then I took 45 minutes of questions. Three quarters of the questions I got were on E, S or G in its various forms. The other 25% were on cryptocurrency, which was slightly <laughs> more challenging for me. But, you know, we talk about our youngsters at the beginning and how we get, trust me, this is top of their agenda. They understand it. And this is part of what we do now, and we have to accept it. And Norman Brown, just to finish that point, what do you see? What should leaders of industry, chief execs, C-suite now be doing to use this opportunity, as Bill Hughes accurately puts it, to build back trust? Some of this trust that you've all been talking about, being lacking in political circles, people thinking about the industry, not having confidence, and that manifests through bad policy, through bad planning, through rent caps, through all of the sorts of things that have happened that have been negative for the sector over the years, there's a, just a, a groundswell of mistrust, isn't there? And I think there is an opportunity now through the decarbonisation agenda and wider ESG agenda, provided that we can create some real substance through it. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think it's important to recognise that regulation will work in partnership with the private sector and the industry to be able to deliver some of these points. So I think, to Bill's point, it's going to be really important for corporates. It's a non-negotiable. They will have to bring forward their targets and they'll be measured by them. So this, I think, is the difference now, is that there are quantifiable positions and people are now focused on the data that allows you to be able to track it. But the bit for me that I think that shouldn't be lost is that there are three initials in that acronym. It's ESG, it's not just E. And I think the real estate industry had typically focused very much on the E aspect, but the S and the G, particularly mm. when you think about regeneration and other aspects, those are also what 
the next generation they care about. That's the social interaction, the social balance are big parts that I think are much more difficult to measure from a real estate output perspective, but actually do drive real change. So mm. I think that is something that as an industry we need to focus on and probably will yield greater results over time for people across the demographic scale and across mm. the age spectrum too. A very final question, Bill Hughes, on that point. And I know we're almost out of time. But this point around building in culture from day zero, and then this is something that LNG has embraced through partnerships with organisations like Sound Diplomacy, and Shane's a former flatmate of mine from years ago, and we've had Shane on the podcast before. This is a company, Sound Diplomacy, that essentially goes into places and provides music audits to identify teaching, rehearsal, performance spaces, and it's something that LNG has used on a few of its projects. And I'm interested not just as a musician and former photographer, but I'm interested in it just from a wider societal perspective about how not just long-term investors, but anyone in the development industry can start to think about cultural strategies on day zero. Pricing this, not waiting for the architects to do it, not waiting for planning, not using it as a sort of negotiating tactic, but doing it a, because it's the right thing, because instinct tells you you can affect real change. How should companies be thinking about this? What should they be doing, Bill? Yeah, so we need to behave as if we've got a responsibility to do the right thing. We're here to provide the built environment for society, and that's multifaceted. It's not about being a surveyor who knows landlord and tenant. It's about figuring out and being progressive and thoughtful and intuitive about how can you have an impact on people. Because without the people, we don't have a business and we're not doing anything remotely useful. So it's about that, and I guess at LNG we've worked hard to be innovative about that, challenge convention, and drive that forward. So, you know, sound diplomacy is one of many examples where we're thinking about the wider ramifications, how we can interact with human beings. And then I think you can build and own real estate and infrastructure that has relevance. And relevance is the thing that really is important here. Mm. Well, let's leave it there. Fantastic conversation. Thanks so much, all of you, for coming in today. Bill Hughes from NG, Lorna Brown from Birchwood Real Estate, Ian Marcus, well, Ian Marcus consultants but you know everything and everybody thank you once again 150 episodes of Propcast you can still subscribe on Spotify SoundCloud Amazon wherever you get your podcasts from Apple as well thank you so much for listening please do continue to send in suggestions comments abuse if you wish to I've been Andrew Teacher thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again soon